welcome. You're listening to a sermon podcast from Oak Hills Church in Folsom, California. I love these one service Sundays, most of them. I mean, most of what goes on. I really do. But I got to tell you, this has nothing to do with anything. But the whole feng shui thing really throws me. We've got the lily whites over here. They're supposed to be over there. Got Dave and Carolyn Holcomb back there. They're supposed to be back there. And it just gets me tipping in every direction. So if I fall over, that's why. Because the room is like off off, uh, alignment. Well, Tim Keller, some of you maybe know the name, maybe knew of him. Tim Keller was a pastor, primarily in New York, for pretty close to three decades, working right in downtown New York City amongst both the very poor and the very wealthy. He also, was also a writer and a theological thinker where he grappled with life with God and how life with God plays out in today's culture and how life with God plays out within a local church. Over the past several years, I found him to be a rather unique voice because he resisted the way of angry rhetoric on hot button issues like sexuality or politics. He refused to get dragged into this either or good person, bad person, right, wrong kind of uh, division. And instead, he did his best to approach all these issues with the scripture as his compass. And he made enemies and friends all along the way. He held his views with deep conviction. And that conviction was actually strengthened by the gentleness and the grace with which he held the conviction. He was a national voice for reasons that I could probably talk about for a long time, a presence and a voice that inspired me in a lot of different ways and gave me hope. And if you know uh, of him, you may know that he died of pancreatic cancer this week at the age of 72. And I've noticed something in myself Over the years, it happened when my pastor and mentor died. It happened when Dallas Willard died. It happened when Eugene Peterson died. And it happened here when Tim Keller died. I've noticed that when humble God-pursuing leaders die, for some reason, I feel the loss as if they were good friends of mine. And to me, the world feels thinner and more vulnerable when humble God-fearing leaders like they were die. Tim Keller was a good man. And he proclaimed the gospel even when people didn't like what he was saying. And even when they went and blasted him for it. So I want to start off today by playing a video of Tim Keller that I'm quite sure was filmed soon after he was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer. And he knew, essentially, that it was a death sentence. So you can play the video. Well, okay, let me just say something that Kathy and I have talked to each other about in the last year. If Jesus Christ was actually raised from the dead, if he really got up, walked out, was seen by hundreds of people, talked to them, if he was raised from the dead, then you know what? Everything's going to be all right. Mm. Whatever you're worried about right now, whatever you're afraid of, everything is actually going to be okay. Mm. Uh, because, because you got to remember, we're not just talking about resurrected people. Jesus Christ is, and this is where Christianity is unique. We're talking about a resurrected world, meaning other, 
uh, there's plenty of other religions that talk about a future afterlife, which is a non-material world. In other words, you get a consolation for the world we've lost. Mm -hmm. Christianity says it's not just your bodies are being resurrected, but the the world is actually going to be a material world that's cleansed from all evil and suffering and uh, and sin. And if Jesus Christ was raised from the dead, then the whole world is going to be, in a sense, resurrected, mm. and everything is going to be okay. Mm. Everything. You don't even you don't know how. I don't know how, but it will be. So, uh, and you know what? Actually, it would, right now I couldn't possibly be convinced that Jesus was not raised from the mm. dead, either intellectually or existentially. So whenever I'm, and by the way, but Kathy and I, listen, we cry. We, had, we, we cried a lot last mm. night. Sometimes the reality of the shortness of what we have left here just overwhelms us. And we were just weeping together and, and crying. And then you say, if Jesus Christ was raised from the dead, it is going to be okay. And then you can wipe your tears, but you don't stop mm. crying. Uh, it's like salt in the wound that keeps the wound from going bad. Mm. Uh, that keeps the wound from getting infected. But it doesn't mean that until the end of, you know, until we actually meet Jesus Christ, we, we still have our wounds. So they aren't going to be healed, but they'll be healed by his. So I think I still could. Yeah, I would still go back to if Jesus Christ was raised from the dead and he was, you're going to be okay. So let me, if you missed it, let me read what he said. If Jesus Christ was actually raised from the dead, then everything is going to be all right. Whatever you are worried about right now, whatever you are afraid of, Everything is actually going to be okay. Because we aren't just talking about resurrected people. We're talking about a resurrected world that will one day be cleansed from all suffering, all evil, and all sin. So everything is going to be okay. This is one of the glorious implications of the Christian faith. If Jesus rose from the grave, then he is the ultimate king over everything, and whatever the future brings, everything will ultimately be okay. So my hope today, as we wrap up this Eastertide series, as we give one more crack at this idea of defiant hope, my hope today is that when we leave here, we will be walking on air with less weight on our shoulders and more hope pulsating in our souls. Because for those who have put their trust in Jesus Christ, whatever the future brings, whether it be trouble, turmoil, suffering, or even death, for those who put their trust in Jesus Christ, everything will ultimately be okay. And this is the resounding message of the Bible and particularly of the New Testament. This is not Tim Keller trying to make himself feel good on the after the news that he's going to die. This is the resounding message of the entire Bible, and particularly the New Testament. And it is really good for us, I think, to occasionally step back from the pressures and the challenges that are sitting right in front of our faces every single day and hike up the hill, if you will, where we can see the bigger and the broader picture of where God is taking human history. What this whole thing is moving toward and what is in store for those who trust and follow him. So the space I'd like us to be in today in our minds and in our hearts is a space where we are thinking about the future. 
way out into the future. Let's just start and say, well, give me a time frame. Let's start with 100 years from now. Think out that far. Think out 400 years, a million years. Think way out in the future as we enter into this today. And with that, if you would stand for our scripture reading, it's coming from the last book in the Bible. Revelation chapter 21, verses 1 through 8. This is the Apostle John, and he is writing this revelation that he received from the Spirit of God. He says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eye. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. He said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give water without cost from the spring of the water of life. Those who are victorious will inherit all this, and I will be their God, and they will be my children. But the cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts, the idolaters, and all liars, they will be consigned to the fiery lake of burning sulfur. This is the second death. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. These powerful words I just read are near the very end of the Bible. The Apostle John, as I mentioned, is describing the future for the people of God. God revealed this future to the Apostle John. He was abandoned on this little island, kind of put there as punishment. And somehow God came to him and spoke to him and revealed things that were yet to come to him. And so John wrote it all down. And we have it in this book called Revelation. And he says here that he saw a new heaven and a new earth. And he saw a new Jerusalem. And he heard a loud voice saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. For the old order of things has passed away. And John is saying to us that a day is coming when all manner of things will finally and ultimately be well and good and whole. And according to our Bible, this is the future for those who are in Christ. Last Sunday was a magnificent gathering for our church. Many of you stood and declared where you need hope. Some of you stood and declared where you are experiencing hope. There were powerful things happening in this room last Sunday. God's spirit was clearly moving. Prayers were being prayed. Hope was being stirred up in some people. 
ministry was happening. And as I've said so many times, the ministry that was happening was not by people sitting and passively listening to someone talk. The ministry was happening as people moved toward each other for prayer and for encouragement. It's what church should be like more often. It's an extremely powerful time, I think, for our congregation. And yet, we are sinful and broken people who live in a sinful and broken world. And life often doesn't work out the way we want. So our hope for healing in this particular health situation or that particular relationship isn't always realized the way we want. So then what? Is that the end of hope? Well, today's message is about the then what? Today is about the ultimate tomorrow that we believe will one day come. And until it comes, we pray, we wait, we work, we hope. But today is about the end of the story. The last page of the book, if you will. The final few minutes of the game. And in addition, as I mentioned earlier, today is Pentecost Sunday where we celebrate the coming of the Holy Spirit to God's people. He came to empower. He came to equip his people to do his work and continue his redemptive story. And someday the Holy Spirit will bring all of his work to completion. Everything the Spirit was sent to do will be completed. And Jesus will return again. And today, this message is about the tomorrow after all that happens. When God's will has been done on earth as it is in heaven. When all of the complicated happenings recorded in the book of Revelation have unfolded, then what is what we're talking about today? Or, if you or I die before all that happens, then what? And I want to begin by simply stating what is hopefully the obvious, but I know probably isn't, and that is that we are eternal beings. In Genesis 2-7 we read, Then the Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. The breath of God brought life to the man. So when God made us, he gave us a soul. Bodies, yes, thoughts, ability to think, feelings, emotions, a heart, relationships, and a soul. So the Christian perspective says every human is an eternal being. Everyone lives forever because everyone has a soul. Our bodies weaken and ache and give out and eventually die and return to dust, but we have an imperishable soul. We are eternal beings. We are not physical beings with a soul. We are spiritual beings with a body. These bodies that we have cannot live without our souls. But our souls can and will live without these bodies, at least for a while. In the daily grind of life, it seems to me it is easy to forget that we are eternal beings. You think about everything that flashes across your mind or comes across your desk or you have to deal with when you're staring at it, it's really easy to forget we are eternal beings. It's really easy to think that everything that is happening right in front of our face is the sum total of everything. But it isn't because we are eternal beings. And every person we lay eyes on, we lay our eyes on, is an eternal being. We have a soul. 
and we will live forever. And I realize not everyone believes this. Humanists don't believe this. Atheists don't believe this. Sometimes I watch myself get so embroiled in the daily grind. I complain about silly things and I get angry about meaningless things and I wonder if I believe it. A friend of Dallas Willard's was struggling with this whole tension of walking with God while living in a difficult and demanding world. And Willard said to him, and this is so profound to the guy, the guy wrote it down, what Willard said. You can see it on the screens. This is what he said. He said, John, you are an unceasing spiritual being with an eternal destiny in God's great universe. That's the most important thing for you to know about you. You should write that down. You know you're smart when you can tell people to write stuff down. Anyway, you should write that down. You should repeat it regularly. You think you have to be someplace else or accomplish something more to find peace, but it's right here. God has yet to bless anyone except where they actually are. Your soul is not just something that lives on after your body dies. It's the most important thing about you. It's your life. You are an unceasing spiritual being with an eternal destiny in God's great universe. I'm curious how that lands on you. I'm curious if you can take that in. I'm curious if you have the ears that can hear that and the eyes that can see that. You are an unceasing spiritual being with an eternal destiny in God's great universe. We should write that down. Imagine how such a reality could reshape a meaningless argument with our spouse. Imagine how such a reality could put the aging process in perspective. Imagine how such a reality could calm us down when life is confusing and we're trying to figure out our next step. It's this idea that being in Christ actually, literally, changes things right now and forever. That something actual and literal happens when we put our confidence in Jesus. And perspective changes, and we are to change because our whole being is in the process of changing. Paul puts it this way in Colossians chapter 3. Since then you have been raised with Christ. He's speaking to people like you and me. Since then you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above. Where Christ is. Seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above. Not on earthly things. For you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ who is your life appears. Then you also will appear with him in glory. Let's talk for a moment about when death comes. As we think about future and we think about hope for the future, let's talk about when death comes. The future for the follower of Jesus will be encountered when Jesus returns for the second time, what is referred to as the second coming of Christ. The future for the follower of Jesus will be encountered when he comes the second time, and we could talk for days and weeks on the various details and opinions surrounding what is known as the end times, but I'll just say it up front, we've never considered that kind of treasure hunt uh, 
to be a very productive use of our time at Oak Hills. If Jesus doesn't return for a while, however, the other way the future will be encountered is upon our death. Here's what I'm saying. That diving into all of this and when's this going to happen and how's that going to go and first this, then that, then that, then this, that's all the work of some people and perhaps those trails are interesting to explore for some and maybe occasionally it's worth doing that. But when we get right down to the bottom line, we are going to face the future for one of two reasons. Either Jesus Christ is going to come back a second time while we are alive or we're going to die. And either way, we are going to experience some kind of future when either of those things happen. And the Bible is clear that at the point of our death, a judgment of some sort happens right away. In the language of Matthew 25, God separates those who are his from those who aren't his. And believe it or not, this judgment is an expression of God's infinite love for human beings. Because God is vigorously committed to respecting every human being's freedom to choose. So we get in eternity what we chose and cultivated and nurtured during our lifetimes. Those who chose God and his way are with him forever and those who rejected God and his way are separated forever. And when we think about this, and often when this kind of thing gets presented, it's presented in a way that makes it seem like this great big punishment that God is doling out to people who didn't give him the time of day when they were living. And sometimes people go to great lengths to get animated and sweaty and start spitting when they talk about the judgment of God because you almost get the impression that they're glad God judges people. And they're glad he drops the hammer. And they're glad some people don't, quote unquote, make it. I want nothing to do with that in talking about this today. Think of it this way. It would actually be unloving for God to send to heaven to be with him forever those who had spent a lifetime avoiding him. I mean, think about it. You spent your whole life running from me, staying away from me, avoiding me, and doing everything I didn't want you to do. And so now I'm going to make you spend forever with me. That would not be loving. C.S. Lewis put it this way. To everyone, God ultimately says, thy will be done. Those who pursued God in life, get him in eternity. Those who didn't, don't. Now, the image of God the judge is scary. It is to me. And it's sobering. Which is another reason why we need to tread humbly and lightly here because God the judge is so often misused to threaten people. And God the judge is sometimes portrayed as one who loves to punish and make people miserable and keep them out of heaven. So let me say this loud and clear. God is infinitely loving and good and he will do whatever he can to rescue people. He will do whatever he can to get as many people into eternity with him as possible. He wants all people to be with him forever. He wants no one to perish or to be separated from him forever. 
He is good. He is gracious. He is loving. He is kind. And he is just. And because he is just, he does what is right. And he makes things right. And judgment is part of making things right. And immediately after our death in some way, shape, or form, there is a judgment. Paul clues us into this in Philippians chapter 1, verses 21 through 24. He says, For to me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I am to go on living in the body, this will mean fruitful labor for me. Yet what shall I choose? I do not know. I am torn between the two. I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far, but it is more necessary for you that I remain in the body. Paul wrote these words when he was in prison facing potential execution, and it is astounding to hear him articulate this dilemma. I'm torn between dying and being with Christ on the one hand, and living and serving him for your sakes on the other hand. I mean, to die would be my preference, but I think it's best if I hang around for your sake. I mean, who talks like this? I think we can say with confidence, Paul knows something about the future. He sees it clearly, and what he knows about the future shapes profoundly how he lives right now in the present. Death is an awful thing. It wreaks pain and suffering on all of us, but Paul knew death was not the last word. That wasn't a slogan for Paul. He knew death was not the last word. He knew death was not the end of the game. For Paul, death was actually the beginning of real life. When Tim Keller says in that video, if Jesus rose from the dead, then everything will be okay. He's not numbing himself with religious platitudes. He knows something about the reality of God and his kingdom and the power of the resurrection and the implications of Jesus's resurrection for his own death. Dwight Moody was a pastor and an evangelist back in the 19th century, the founder of Moody Bible Institute, if you've heard of that, in Chicago. And Moody said this once. He said, soon you will read in the newspaper that I am dead. Don't believe it for a moment. I'll be more alive than ever before. When the follower of Jesus dies, they are more alive than ever before. Something that in the however many funerals I've done over the years, when it is a Christ follower, I probably say it 15 times. Just understand that so-and-so is right now more alive than ever before. In the final scene of Jesus' earthly life, he was dying on a cross. <clears throat> with a convicted criminal on either side of him. And in those waning moments, as the clock was literally running out, one of those criminals somehow realized he'd wasted his life. And somehow, his soul was stirred by the man hanging next to him. And this dying criminal said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom." And Jesus said, what are you nuts? You've lived your whole life in crime and now you think you're going to get out of it at the end? <laughs> Jesus answered him, truly I tell you, today 
you will be with me in paradise. Jesus is saying, if we can just have a little bit of creative license here, Jesus is saying, hey, I'm going to see you soon, friend. In a minute, you're going to be more alive than you've ever been before. You cannot imagine what is in store for you. You wouldn't believe it if I told you. So just hang on. It's almost here. Soon you will be with me and everything will be okay. That is the future for every single Christ follower. That sounds pretty good to me. The word paradise Jesus uses here at the end of his life means walled garden or enclosed garden. And if you're thinking it's a reference to the Garden of Eden, then you're right. It's the word used to describe the Garden of Eden. A place of rest. A place of peace. A place of beauty. Happiness. Shalom. It's a place where we see more clearly than we do now. Shadows flee. Veils are lifted. Truths we know something about now sink in deeper. We see God like we never have before. We see each other like we have never seen each other before. And God sees us like we never realized he's seen us all the time. Goodness runs wild in this paradise. And when the Christ follower dies, their soul instantly goes to paradise where they are more fully alive than we are right here right now think about that paradise is not harps and clouds and bunches of grapes and halos and never-ending sermons and worship songs it's not shooting par on my favorite golf course every day or living in some high-priced resort forever to be fully alive think about that i mean what does it mean to be fully alive if We were to say, so-and-so is fully alive right now. We would say things like, uh, uh, maybe the little appetizers of life that we taste once in a while when we're alive on earth become full-course meals in paradise. So I think it's a place of unspeakable joy. We taste joy now and then, but there it is a constant. It's a place of laughter. It's a place of wonder. I think in eternity, we continue to think and learn and discover. I mean, can you imagine being fully alive and being stagnant, being static? Oh, I know that. I know that. I know that. I know that. Been there, done that. I mean, it's not even imaginable. I think in eternity, our character might even continue to grow. Just as there was a Garden of Eden... There are relationships beyond our wildest imagination in eternity. There have to be. What could it possibly mean to be fully alive? Today you'll be with me in paradise. Relationship. I imagine there's work to do in paradise, just like there was in the Garden of Eden. Satisfying work. Growing things. Making things. I promise you, though, You write this down. This is what you really should. This is about what I'm capable of telling you to write down. What you should write down is there's no laundry to wash or fold or trash to take out into different colored bins when you're in eternity. That's all. That's part of the evil that has been washed away. 
I think in eternity we'll recognize Christ-following members and friends who have died before us. Many of you know people from our church who have died before us. And I think when we die, we will recognize them and they will recognize us. Family members, the same thing. We will be fully alive in those relationships, experiencing love and community and healing in inexpressible ways. It sounds too good to be true. Sounds a bit like a fairy tale. It sounds like the very reason why some people critique religious people because they claim that religious people are trying to make the harshness of life easier by making up a pretend story about what happens after death. But the Bible makes it quite clear that the future God has in store for those who follow him is incredibly good, beyond description good, and thoroughly true. So we come to the last thing I want to talk about, and that is our final resting place. This may seem like splitting hairs, but I think it's important to understand the difference between what happens right after we die, paradise, what we just talked about, and what we call heaven. Because they're not the same thing. When someone dies, people will say, well, they've gone to heaven. Or they'll say wishfully of themselves, I hope I go to heaven when I die. But when Paul says, I desire to depart and be with Christ, he is not talking about going to heaven. He's actually talking about what's called an intermediate state that we enter right after death and before heaven. At our death, our soul is immediately with God or apart from him in paradise or in Hades, but this paradise or Hades is not our final resting place. Theologians call it an intermediate state. It's not soul sleep. We're conscious and awake and aware, and we stay in this intermediate place of paradise or Hades until Jesus returns a second time. And at some point in that process, and I purposefully avoid all of the, well, when is that? Does this happen first? Does that happen second? I purposefully avoid all of that because while it's interesting, it's not essential. At some point in the process, our bodies, these bodies, in some way, will be resurrected and transformed and remade. Think Jesus after his resurrection, walking down the road. They don't recognize him at first, but then they recognize him. And eventually, after all sorts of adventures near the end of history that are rather complicated and confusing, we end up in our final resting place, alive forever in our resurrected body in a place called heaven. And it's what Revelation 21 is talking about, what we read earlier. In fact, the scholars I pay attention to, and you may like this or not or believe this or not, but the scholars I pay attention to believe that heaven is not a place up in the sky somewhere. Heaven is this earth remade, transformed, and cleansed of all the suffering and sin and evil. Revelation 21. I saw a new heaven and a new earth and God coming to dwell with his people forever. No more tears. No more pain. No more sadness. No more loneliness. No more fear. Joy. Peace. Love. Goodness. 
All is well. Everything is okay. This is the future for those who are in Christ. I've been thinking a lot about my mom lately. She died on January 7, 2021, and she was on hospice near the end of her life. And on Monday, January 4th, she was asleep. My brother was out of the room getting lunch at Chick-fil-A. Why I include such detail is beyond me, but I did. And I was standing at the end of my mom's bed, and she was laying there sleeping. And all of a sudden, she woke up, and she just looked straight at me. And she said, we had fun, didn't we? When my brother got back, she was sleeping again. And at one point, just out of nowhere, she woke up and she looked at him. And she said, we had fun, didn't we? And here's the thing to kind of drive this home. If right now, my mom could somehow come back And live again in this world with our family and resume the fun that we had together, she wouldn't even think about it. Because the life she is now living in the presence of God is far more beautiful, far more wonderful, far more meaningful, and far more fun than the one she had on earth. And I want to say it one more time. For those who are followers of Christ, that is our future hope. I know some of you are on the cusp of tough things, health-wise, relationship-wise, decision-wise, and otherwise. And I get it. We can't pretend those things aren't real and have to be navigated. But let me say it again. That's our future hope. 100 years from now, 400 years from now, million years from now. We will be with God. When we die, we will be with God. And then we will be with him forever in heaven. Would you pray with me? Holy Spirit. just very, very grateful for this amazing hope that we have because of Jesus Christ and because he rose from the dead. Thank you for witnesses like Tim Keller who's staring straight into the reality of his own death, but he sees past it and he knows Because Jesus rose from the dead, everything will be okay. We recognize God, and you know this as well, that sometimes this life can be a real grind. And so today we give ourselves permission to look out into the future and celebrate that one day you will make it all new. And for those who have their trust in you, they will realize that trusting you 
has made everything okay. We're thankful for this passage in Revelation 21, what it points us to, what it stirs up in us. I continue to pray, Holy Spirit, that you will work out your purposes in our church. Make us an incredibly humble people. Unwilling to fight and argue to win some point. We pray that your sweet goodness, your grace, the depth of your love would be embodied in our life together. So that people will see and hear that you are a God of good news. You are a God of hope. And we look forward to the day when all of these things come to an end. And all evil and all suffering and all hatred and all darkness is eradicated forever. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. And there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. Prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people. And he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. And then he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true.